0: We're here at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute to talk about autonomous vehicles and connectivity. Next on Talking Cars. Hi everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Talking Cars. I'm John Lincove. I'm Jake
1: Fisher.
2: I'm Jennifer Stockburger.
0: And as you can see, we're not at the test track. We're actually at the garage at Umtree, the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. And we're here to learn about autonomous vehicles and connectivity, such as vehicle-to-vehicle communications and vehicle-to-infrastructure. We're here with Jim Sayer, who's director of Umtree. And Jim, can you tell us a little bit about the facility and what you do here?
3: Yeah, Umtree is a multidisciplinary research institute, part of the university. Uh, Was founded in 1965. Uh, We do primarily research related to occupants of vehicles and the vehicles themselves. Uh, We have behavioral scientists, social scientists, engineers, data experts. Uh, So, a wide range of things related to automotive uh, and just generally uh, traffic safety.
0: And we've been uh, we we got to experience M City over the last couple days and. You know, what, what is MCity city and just can give a little bit of overview about that sure Mcity is a uh, specially
3: designed uh, test track test facility uh, for testing connected and automated vehicle technologies uh, it's built uh, completely to real world standards uh, but allows you in a very safe environment and repeatable uh, way to test autonomous and connected systems
0: well and we've been you know really involved with autonomous vehicles from Tesla and from Volvo and, and all kinds of other you know manufacturers and you know Jake, what, what have we been seeing recently <clears> with autonomy? Whether it's from CES show and as well. Well, our I findings?
1: mean, let's let, let's let's break up autonomy for a second here. I mean, what Jim's working on is really true autonomous cars. I mean, this, it was really cool. Thank you for giving us a tour around the facility. I mean, w- what you guys are doing is really true autonomous. What we're playing with and with these cars that we're, we're buying, they aren't autonomous cars by any means. They have some autonomous features, and they're using some of the learnings, I think. But the way they're kind of applying them is a bit haphazard. We have some c- concerns about how they're deploying it, and it seems like everyone's kind of over all over the map right now in terms of the manufacturers.
3: Have you seen that, Jim? Yeah, really the focus now is on various levels of automation, so it's not truly fully autonomous. Fully autonomous would be the occupants don't have to really interact with the vehicle at all. What we're seeing are things like lane keeping assist, um, forward crash uh, prevention or avoidance. These are levels of autonomous. Um, and those are being tested out at M-City as well. But it, yeah, we're still a while away from a, a fully autonomous vehicle.
1: What, what, what do you think, what's your best yeah. guess for date? I mean, we, we talk about this a lot in terms of like, you know, and, and, and a lot of manufacturers are like, fully autonomous, coming out next year. And we're like, wait a minute, really? <laughs> what, what do you think? Uh,
3: I, I think realistically, uh, if you're talking about a vehicle that will replace a vehicle that you normally drive today, like, like, or, like my
1: eight year old kid could get it without a license and take it to school. Yeah,
3: you know, that's probably
0: 10 to 15 years away. So, For it to yeah. be just offered and available, because the fleet replacement is going to be even decades after that. Right, that's at least a couple decades after that. You know, Jen, uh, Jim mentioned a couple couple topics that are very close for CR, uh, forward collision warning, right. autonomy, automatic emergency braking, excuse me. Could you go into a little bit about that for people who may not know?
2: Sure. So these are, like Jim says, these are the building blocks of autonomy, things like um Forward collision warning that will tell you, as the driver, that there's imminent, you know, you're approaching another car too fast or something like that, and you need to react. We think there's great value there. There's real data that says there's value there in, in safety. And then automatic emergency braking, which is even just a step further than that, where the car will then do something if you don't. So they're all building on one another. Um, We actually give extra points in our overall scores now for these features, because we really see some potential benefits there. But again, to Jake's point, you still as a driver need to be engaged. These things are autonomous until they're not. So, and then you have to check back in. So we see all of those as absolute safety benefits. We build them into our overall score.
0: In our testing, who have we seen that's, that's done well as implementing these features, and then who maybe has some, some ways to go? Well, I mean, look,
1: in terms of these features, again, you, you talk about building blocks, right? I mean, there's this whole real you know, gray area from, you know, I'm driving the car, as a stick shift, it's manual steering, to like fully autonomous, right. which I think you're right. I think 15, 20 years, it's going to be a while. Maybe not what you're hearing in the headlines today. But in terms of, you know, AEB, automatic emergency braking, FCW, forward collision warning, this stuff is great. But in terms of, you know, again, this semi autonomous stuff, I mean, quite honestly, we're a little uncomfortable with the stuff because it's a mixed message to people. It's like, well, you don't have to pay attention as much. Mm -hmm. Well, really? I mean, you do. You do. So, I mean, right now, the data isn't out there. Of what systems are better, and we do see some systems that are very passive. I think Volvo really is kind of an example. Right. A Mercedes-Benz is very, very passive. And, and what I mean passive is you're driving along, and it's like it kind of nudges you if you hit the lanes. You know, it kind of gives you a, yeah, try to do. It. Whereas you get a system like Tesla, where it almost encourages you to take your hands mm-hmm. off the wheel yeah, right. because once you get your hands on the wheel, it disables the system. So it almost encourages you to, to be, to the driver to be more passive.
0: And what the the, the first ones the. the Prior ones are driver assist, right, rather, right. You know, an, an away from autonomy. Exactly,
1: exactly. Driver assist, and, and that's really what the systems I think are capable of now. They're capable of assisting the driver. If the automaker tries to make it where the car is doing the driving and the driver assists the car, right. this is not a good situation. And I think some of them are kind of in that realm. Um, and we're going to have to see as they go, more automakers hit, hit the market with these systems. They're all over the map.
3: Even those assistance systems still have challenging environments. If the road's uh, covered by right. snow, the lane departure warning or lane keeping right. assist isn't they can't going see to work. can't right. right. You're exactly right. So something you're
1: relying on, now you don't have it. And, and sometimes when they disable, and I'm thinking about the Volvo system um, right now where it's the, uh, it's not the drive pilot, it's the drive, you know, pilot assist. Pilot right. assist. Right. So all, all,
2: even those marketing terms, <laughs> autopilot, It's like electronic stability assist. control there's all no over.
1: There's no Right, exactly. Yeah. Everyone calls it something different, you right. know, distronic plus, whatever. I, I, don't, I, I don't even know. But um, but the Volvo system, it'll sit there and kind of like, you know, look at the lanes. And then there's like a steering wheel that's blue and it turns gray. Yep. And now it's not doing it anymore. It's like, exactly. how passive is that? It doesn't nice. go like, eh, eh and we're no longer doing it. Basically it basically
0: throws you to the wolves. <laughs> I'm not ready anymore. It's like, <laughs> hey, go. Psst, psst, by the way. Right. <laughs> it's up you to might you. want to put a, hands on the wheel. There's again. a curve ahead. I won't even tell you that. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of that, so with the curve ahead, some of the uh, the technology that we experienced was the vehicle to vehicle and vehicle infrastructure. And how is that a component of future of autonomy? Is it key, not key, uh, uh, parallel, what what's what do you uh, think? I, I it's fundamental. It really is the
3: basis of fully autonomous vehicles. And, and why, why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you can't uh, have the vehicles communicating with one another, and in particular, communicating with the infrastructure, the traffic signals, for example, you can't manage traffic. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. everyone was truly autonomous, all those vehicles are going to be out trying to, you know, improve their position in the traffic flow and it, not worrying about the big picture. Just worrying about themselves. They're just, just they're keeping within themselves. the lane. They're keeping away from the vehicle right. in front of them. That's yep. it. Yeah, if you really wanna maximize things like uh, throughput and reduce you know, fuel consumption and reduce emissions, you have to have uh, vehicles that are integrated communicating with the infrastructure itself.
2: One of the things we were saying too is, is a lot of the autonomous, um, again, in its own small environment relies on seeing to some yeah. way, be the seeing by radar yeah. or LIDAR or sonar or camera. Whereas the V2V to v, v to v technology and the V2I technology is beyond seeing. It's an yeah. insight, if you will, into what's going on even for what you can't
3: see. There's, there's a yeah. classic example of that. Uh, there was a crash on Interstate 94 mm-hmm. uh, about two hours to the west of here uh, last winter. Yep. And uh, there were nine, no, 199 cars, one fatality, and you can see um, because some of the trucks had video cameras in them, the sensors wouldn't work. It, you know, It was driving snow and, and or sleet, um, and, by the, and the road was icy. So by the time the forward collision warning or a, a vehicle-based sensor system would have
0: kicked in, they <clears> didn't <throat> have enough time to stop. Right, and, that, and that's one of the interesting things that I've seen uh, a number of journalists talk about, especially coming out to Detroit now uh, for the auto show time, uh, You know, that's when we're, we're taping, is that they come from California, and it's always great weather and great roads out in California, and their vehicle doesn't have, has the sensors are covered because of snow and ice and such like that. And they go, oh, you know, the lane keeping assist didn't work, and, you know, oh, this, we're really not there yet. And we've been saying that for a while, again, driving in Connecticut, much like you, that, yeah, the sensors get covered. You know, it's not there yet where it, has the infrastructure that it's talking to, that it knows because, it, GPS may work, it knows where it is on the road, but you have no idea, or, or if they mill the road, is. or if they take an exit away, you know what have you. Yeah.
1: I, I just want to make the point, how important V2V and V2I stuff is. And I don't think we really, I don't think there's enough talk about it. I mean, everyone's seen the videos of, oh, my hands are off the wheel and the steering wheel's going, how cool is that? But V2I and V2V is really, and it's not even just about automation, right? I mean, this is gonna help everyone, whether or not you have an autonomous driven vehicle or not, but it's like, you know, when you drive, you you use your senses, right? You hear things, you see things. And this is like a sixth sense where you could sit there and, you know, I may not be able to see the car that's four around or, or the car that's coming around the building that's flying through here, but it gives you that sense where you could know what's going on, you could see that before it happens. And it has such implications in terms of safety, in terms of all these things. And and, and you could retrofit cars easier than you could with in terms of you don't need the cameras, you don't need any of the, I mean, basically anything with data, right? I mean, you could, could you do this on a cell phone or?
3: Oh, we've done it on a cell phone. Uh, We've prototyped on a cell phone for pedestrian safety and bicyclist safety. We've also equipped bicycles and motorcycles.
1: Can we get like chips and put them on deer? Can we just kind
4: <laughs> of know, <laughs> know the speed of the deer when it's gonna come in front Not of yet. you? Yeah, Get, you, could, you could use
3: that. The, the problem is is getting them back in to replace the batteries. Yes, <clears throat> right. They we just sold it, they just sold, sold it.
1: Just sold solar. Solar. Yeah, solar yeah. okay. Words. Well, right. we're here to help. Okay. <laughs> well part
0: of part of the, the demonstration that we, we had both on city streets as well as M City was for ice warnings or curve warning or for braking. So could you tell how how does the system work? How do, they, how do the vehicles communicate? Is it vehicle to vehicle? Is there a central uh, traffic management organ, uh, group or office? And then also, we, we should touch on privacy. OK. Uh, so uh,
3: number one, there doesn't need to be uh, like a, a centralized traffic management or wireless communication management system. Uh, each individual site can be standalone. Uh, and so you can, for curve speed warning, you know, warning you that you may be going too fast for an upcoming curve it really can just be the radio that's positioned physically at the site uh, or nearby. It doesn't even have to physically be at the location of the curve. Uh, And so it's broadcasting a wireless signal to all the vehicles that have a radio that's listening at the same frequency, 5.9 gigahertz, and can convey a message wirelessly. Hey, there's a curve up ahead. We think you're going too fast.
0: So Uh, it could be speed dependent. It couldn't be that just because was a curve, it almost becomes information overload where the person says, I, I turn this off. I know, off. It's I, I know there's, it's right. I know it's it's here, but it's if they're doing 55 into right. a 25 mile an hour mark curve. Yes, maybe. it can be speed dependent. It also can be, um, so
3: use geofencing, knowing what direction the vehicle's traveling. It can actually be direction specific because the radius of curvature for on the inside lane sure. is sharper than on the outside, outside. lane. Uh, you can also uh, merge that with, uh, sensors right in the pavement, uh, or measuring the atmosphere to measure how cold is it, uh, is there ice on the road, or is the road wet, and you can
0: adjust that recommended speed specific to the environmental conditions. So that would be infrastructure to the vehicle. Correct. So what about the vehicles talking to each other uh, with like a braking event or something like that? Yeah. So vehicle to vehicle again, same
3: exact same technology. Um, Other vehicles, um, you know, one of the other advantages, uh, you know, relative to cameras is it's 360 degrees. So rather than having to have a camera pointing, you know, multiple cameras pointing all around the vehicle or multiple (coughs) radars, you're receiving, with one antenna, uh, signals from 360 degrees around you. Instances uh, like vehicle to vehicle to avoid crashes, uh, probably one of the most um, eye-opening for those that haven't experienced it before, is the enhanced electronic brake light warning. Uh, That's a situation where uh, maybe five vehicles up, someone's all of a sudden applying the brakes to turn into a driveway. You may be, you know, being multiple cars back, can't even see that car. You can't see the brake lights come on. But that wireless signal um, that that vehicle up ahead is transmitting reaches your vehicle and warns you
2: Someone up ahead is slowing down.
3: Right. Would that I think do that's the same
2: thing with stability control? So, say there's stability control went mm-hmm. on, you would, you would right. know that. Yep. You could do that. Too. Yeah. So,
1: it would be neat if you could actually put the brake lights of the car in front of you. <laughs> so yeah. you know yeah, that. Sure. <laughs> like they all go on.
0: It's yeah.
2: going to happen. Well, it strikes you know. me, though, too, as you're talking, it's not just V to I, it's I to V. Right. Yes. From right. what you're saying. The yep. infrastructure is talking right. back to the car all the
0: time, too. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, how, and how would I, we touched on it, but how about four pedestrians, four bicycles? You know, you're not going to have a sensor on you all the time. Maybe you're, you know, your, your Garmin or your bike computer could have that, but you were talking about other ways that, that they would be able to communicate with the infrastructure and the vehicles. Uh,
3: yeah, so, I mean, for, primarily what we're looking at is integration of uh, dedicated short-range communication, 5.9 gigahertz, into cell phones. Uh, so there are some phone manufacturers and some chip manufacturers that have uh, prototyped this. Uh, Honda has demonstrated it. Um, actually, here at M City and elsewhere, uh, where the phone, which is fairly ubiquitous anymore, okay. uh, is actually the transponder and receiver. Uh, so, its signal from the phone is warning oncoming vehicles that you, as a pedestrian or bicyclist, is there, uh, and at the same time, it can be used to warn the pedestrian uh, that they may be approaching traffic that they don't realize. I suppose that could also be used in the car too. I mean, I'm just thinking.
1: In terms of the fleet of cars, it takes a long time to turn over. The fleet of cell phones is like, you know, two years, and most people get a new cell phone.
3: Yeah, you could. You'd still really want uh, an external antenna, right? Because once you get the cell phone inside the vehicle, even when you're carrying the phone in your pocket or something, The, right. the quality of the signal, uh, particularly the GPS positioning information, so is not. So maybe you as have like a
1: Bluetooth connected or something, an antenna, and then that has nice. this. Has the alerts on it or whatever, right?
3: But the, but you know DSRC, the the price of those units is is coming down so dramatically, uh, and and again it can be retrofitted. Uh, this is not something that has to be engineered into the vehicle uh, by the manufacturer. It can be, and of course we have retrofitted over two thousand five hundred vehicles here in the community, um, of all makes and models
0: and years.
2: And what's what's DSRC?
0: A dedicated short range communication. Okay. Well, that yep. leads into you know, a, a finding or something that we've experienced. We, we've been trying out dash cams just to, uh, to give people some advice, and some of them come with safety features, right, right. Jen? Yeah,
2: they can, you know, very similar to what it would be integrated in your car. Some of these dash cams can serve a forward collision warning. But Function.
0: What we found with some of them, I think,
2: weren't very, as reliable. They certainly weren't as reliable as the as the systems that were integrated into the cars. So they, they either didn't go off or went off too frequently and became kind of this false alert.
0: So you system. know, unlike a, a it's difficult to retrofit yeah. that type yeah. of technology. But what what do you it's think it would cost nothing. possibly to to be able to have a you know part of the used car fleet just to have someone be able to do that? And, and a, what would be a, a target maybe? Yeah. Yeah, so it depends on what level, how many applications.
3: You know, it's just like you have a smartphone and you purchase applications. Sure. Um, it really depends on the way it's implemented. The, the radio and the antenna itself, under $300 probably. Uh, but when you start to get to applications where you want to display information to the driver, well, do they have to, are they using their own cell phone as the display? You know, via Bluetooth connection or is there a dedicated display? And there'll be laws about that if you could have that right. up, yep. up in the dash or not, or yep. in the mirror or don't something. Don't want it to like be that. distracting. So it, it depends on the specific way it's implemented, but it's probably under $500, probably well under
0: $500. Which is an affordable way to keep a well performing lower mile or mid mile car that has most modern safety features in it on the road instead of having to turn it over.
2: And to speed up the timing that you talked about, because you don't have to wait till your next new car to get it implemented. Exactly. Retrofit.
0: Jake, what would be some of the concerns that we'd have with some of this? Well, I mean,
1: really, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of pluses here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know in terms of um, privacy, you know, you're transmitting information about your car conceivably. Um, you know, uh, we want to make sure that everything's going to be secure, people aren't tracking you or what, whatnot. Um, uh, the other concern is just, again, is the spreading you know uh, how quickly the fleet gets this. So like for instance if you are like wow well, I can know if, I know if a car's coming because it's going to be you know transmitting to me. Well, if not all the cars have that, you know um, you know you could almost use the example of like blind spot warning, right? It's like okay, blind spot warnings are really great. You know, it sits there and it tells you if there's somebody in your blind spot. Um, however, if you look at the social experiment, well now people aren't doing this anymore. They aren't turning their head because it's like, oh, I got a little light. It's
0: compensating it's, for behavior. Right, almost. or
1: a review camera, you camera know, is, is, is terrific. It shows that blind spot or is a kid down there? Particularly if that. you have a hard time turning. You know, <clears throat> turning but now people who used to turn their head aren't doing that anymore. Right. So if the technology is not 100% and is not going to tell you the information you want, when people start relying on it, I guess that's, that's really the concern. So I mean, it, really, it's kind of almost the race to try to get this in the fleet and try to get it so you can rely on the system um, rather than, you know, maybe I can, maybe I can't.
0: How, how is the data protected, basically? How, how is our, our private data, you know, to make it so that someone's not following someone home, et cetera?
3: So a, a lot of security um, effort went into the design of the system to start with. Security was recognized as something that had to be um, addressed front and center. Uh, Primarily, what happens is you get what are called certificates. Uh, The vehicle can come preloaded with them or the radio can come, and then you can get additional ones. You might have three years or five years worth of certificates. Those certificates make your radio, i.e. your vehicle, valid and and other radials in the infrastructure and other cars will recognize it. But those certificates change every five minutes. So if you drive past one location, in the infrastructure, uh, and it's saying, here's a certain vehicle with a certain certificate and identification number associated with it, you get by miles down the road, and and you're on a new certificate. So you reach another piece of infrastructure, it's not the same. They can't essentially follow you from one landmark to another, because those certificates keep changing about every five minutes.
2: And where's that managed, Jim? Like, where what causes the change, just from a technology standpoint?
3: Uh, what causes the change really is time. It okay. just it's time
2: based. Okay. It times out. Yeah.
0: It where does the where does this hit on the consumers' need to be educated? You know, I mean, one of the things that we we see is people buy vehicles with technology and then. All of a sudden like well I, I just never knew how to do it and you know and, and no one told me and i didn't even know i had the volvo drive assist or pilot assist i didn't know i had to move the toggle over why so, is the
1: steering wheel being pulled over why is it not doing that you right. know, wh-
0: where does it fall is it is it manufacturers is it the dealers
1: level you know well i mean we certainly could say we, we've seen uh the dealers and the manufacturers doing a terrible job of this um not educating people at the dealerships not really making it clear what the cars are doing or sometimes I mean, Not example. even
2: understanding it themselves sometimes. <clears throat> right, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could use the uh, well, one of the cars that we really like, the, uh, the uh, Audi uh, Q7. Q7. This is this is a, a terrific SUV. Top rated SUV. Top-rated. It's great. Well, it comes with lane departure mitigation system. So, why this works is it sees the lanes and it pulls pulls you over. Well, you know, sometimes you're going out of your lane. Maybe you're trying to avoid you know a bicycle or something like, and it takes a steering wheel and does this. And it's really hard to figure out how to disable that because it could be startling. And um, I actually had to surf the web to find out the first time to <gasps> shut it off because it's a little button that's on the end of a, the turn signal stuff, stop, which is right. obscured by, by the, the steering, steering wheel. Right. So you go through the menus and you can't do it. So again, it's like, wow, what a great opportunity to tell people what they have. What a great opportunity to make it clear what the car is doing and... you and know, to get, here,
0: gain buy-in by, with the public as well, because so, so, I mean, they enjoy it.
1: Right. So, so, I mean, in terms of V2V and V2I, certainly the technology, awesome, awesome, awesome. But it's this other step of how to communicate to the driver. And right now, there are cars you get into, and there's things beeping, and your seat's buzzing, and your steering wheel's buzzing, and you have no idea why. And sometimes it could be distracting. You're like, oh, my seat's buzzing. Is my phone going off? I don't know. And it's trying to tell you that you're going to crash into something. Right. So I think that is... Like, I mean, has there been any work in terms of standardization of the warnings that are inevitable from the systems?
3: It's been talked about. <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion about that, but, uh, you know, a comment was made earlier. We, we don't even name, you know, different manufacturers right. name the same technology right. different right. things. So we, do, we can't even settle on standardized mm-hmm. names. So as a person transfers from one vehicle to another. Particularly, like a rental vehicle. Oh yeah. Whether they know what is meant, it's something to do with the you know lane keeping. But I don't know. Does it? Is going to put me back in my lane? Is it just going to warn me? Yeah. Um, so that's a challenge. And you know, the driver vehicle interface. You know, what's portrayed? The information is portrayed to the driver. Um, you know, most manufacturers see that as you know their way to
0: differentiate themselves. So a couple of the other challenges, you were mentioning one about just the, the user experience of the vehicle uh, as its own, Jen.
2: Yeah, it's so different when you're buying a new vehicle now that gone are the days when you can take that owner's manual and put it in your glove box and never look at it. it well, now see, they
0: don't fit in glove boxes, yeah, first, first of, of all. first <laughs> of all,
2: they might not even be a manual, they might be some download. But it really, you really have to study your car if you want to understand what it's going to do and what all these signals and beeps mean, again, to Jim's point, because they're all different you really need to take some time to go through that manual, even if it's just the safety. Well, sections. I
1: mean, and, 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 let me take a tiny different spin on that. Yeah. If the auto manufacturer requires you to read the manual to figure out how to use it, they failed you know, if you design the things right, it needs to be intuitive. And this is why like stability control, we were like so into it. You don't have to learn how to use stability control. It just does it. It does what you think it needs to do. And, um, you know, that's and and, and, like there's ways to put any of the technology so it's intuitive. I mean, I, I would argue that some of the lane departure warnings um, you know, when they put it in the steering wheel the steering wheel kind of shakes. Well that's kind of a natural thing, right? Because everyone knows those rumble strips that are on the side of the highways and mm-hmm. you're like, "Oh, okay, I'm going over the line and it rumbles."
0: And it doesn't mimic a tire <clears> falling <throat> off. I mean, it's not so <laughs> right. clear <Yeah>, that your <laughs> like steering wheel's not doing right. like this right. or, or my seat's not buzzing where I'm like, "Well, on those we've you know, we've, comfortable. we comfortable. I find know. some weird, well, you know, the massage features are nice, but <laughs> right. we we found that on the And you're trying to turn it off. You're not looking, you know, if your seat buzzes, when you're backing out of a parking space between right. two SUVs, the first thing you do is look down. You don't look, oh, maybe I should hit the brakes. You, you just, you just wonder <laughs> right. so it's not intuitive. It's not, you know, right. Where, right. You know like, whereas the lights in the mirrors, you're, you should be looking in the mirrors.
1: So, I mean, I'm convinced there is a way, and, and, and apparently, I mean, I don't think it's done yet, but I mean, there's a way that you can make this stuff so it is intuitive that it's obvious, oh, there's a car there or what. Not Because I think, and, you know, and maybe they're going to have to take a look at you know, so what Silicon Valley is doing. And there's a reason why the auto manufacturers are setting up shop at Silicon Valley, to try to get that talent who can figure out how to make that smartphone, or whatever it is that is intuitive and you don't have to well, read the
2: manual.
3: And, <laughs> well, so, okay. and to Jim's
2: point, the more standard they are, the better that is, too. If, if every buzz in your seat means right. the same thing in every car, that's because, better.
3: Because you can talk right. about reading the manual um, or getting demonstrations at the dealership. But as you transition, if we start talking about car sharing, and people are transitioning from one vehicle make model to another on a regular basis.
1: You're exactly right. There was was a gentleman I was talking to here about, um, it was Pilot. And um, we're talking about just standardization in terms of you know aircraft. You know, I mean you want a pilot getting into a you know this airplane and that, but if they want things in the same spot. And if you constantly move things around and it buzzes or it blinks or I mean we talk about shifters. I mean they can't even get the shifters right on new cars, right? It's like, oh, sometimes you, you, you put it left and right and up what and it goes down. up and down or
0: there's buttons here, or there's buttons that go the opposite way depending on the model year.
1: Yeah, and exactly. So the answer isn't necessarily having the Lincoln dealer telling you which button to push. It's about being intuitive. So when you give it to someone who isn't familiar with the car or rented the car or whatever it is, can get into well, it. Well,
0: also, when should this be worked out? <clears throat> should it be right, something that's developed? Let's, let's go. Well, <laughs> <Right>. well <laughs> three those years. discussions ago. are happening, well, right? So where's where's the beta testing and it, it happen? You know, that's one of the things right. we've seen as well. Is you know the, the almost the not ready for primetime players, if you will, <laughs> is that your deal? Well,
1: sure, sure, absolutely. And then there's kind of um, you know. And there's there's different, I mean in terms of autonomous it's the same kind of thing. There's these there's like one school of thought, and we see some manufacturers kind of like, let's go test this stuff to death, let's go and have captive fleets, and let's go and let's try all these things and you know we'll drive around M City and try them all out. There's other manufacturers that are like, let's try it out. We'll call it beta. It's good. Just and we'll see what happens. But we'll be able to change it quickly. We'll be able to update it. And um, there's two schools of thoughts, and we see them both happening with sub-success and some problems. I mean, what, what, what are kind of your thoughts on that? I'm kind of interested to think you know, how, how the deployment
3: is so different. Yeah, it, I guess it depends on what, <clears throat> what you define as beta. You know? <laughs> uh, so some systems may be ready for some early testing mm-hmm. by a limited percentage of the fleet. Uh, but it really depends on, you know, it, are you sure that it's even ready for prime time? Have you addressed what are, you think are all the known challenges Right, And right. it's where, you know, uh, what we think of as non-traditional vehicle manufacturers, uh, they're not necessarily, they may not even know what all the challenges are. Sure. <laughs> Whereas the traditional manufacturers have been in this game, uh, working on driver assistance systems, <clears throat> uh, advanced vehicle technology for the last 25 years.
1: And we talk about non-traditional, I mean, you know. Tesla, when they came up with the summon mode, which was kind of like this right where you hit the button on your cell phone and the car's driving down the street, you know, it moves by itself, which is kind of like a, a landmark, I think, in autonomy, where Certainly. the first Certainly. time yeah. we're seeing a car move where I don't have to be in the car it come out of the it.
0: garage or go it's going the really slow. There's yeah.
1: lots of, you know, fail-says and whatnot. And as soon as they deployed it, we realized that when the app crashes or you close the app by accident, accident. the car just keeps on going. Like you'd think, like when the app would close, they would try that out, and it's like, oh, we'll stop it because now the person doesn't have the button that says stop anymore, <laughs> you know. So, um, but it didn't. And we had said, hey, this is bad. And what was amazing about it was Tesla responded, and within I think it was four days, they had updated the car with new software, updated the app with new software, and fixed the problem.
3: Yeah, it's one. Th- it's, but it's one thing to update the software to fix what are known errors. It's another, to, if you start adjusting, monkeying with the, uh, basically the ability of the system, the capability of the system. Because you could actually reduce the capability. And therefore, the driver leading up to that point has some previous experience and expectations they about think. the way a vehicle's, vehicle's going to behave, and now all of a sudden it's changed.
0: Well, you know, and which brings in another another thought about challenges about you know how to edu- how's the American public going to handle this? I think you brought up a statistic about about just reading levels and stuff like that. That it's yeah. it's a big is a big challenge. Yeah, it's
3: so it's a huge challenge. I mean, the average reading level in the United States is unfortunately only about the sixth grade. Uh, so, not only do people not read their manuals, some people literally can't can't comprehend can't comprehend, it, can't comprehend take uh, and as the systems get more and more sophisticated. And then the question has become of, so when is my responsibility, when is the vehicle's responsibility? Uh, that's gonna become increasingly difficult.
1: Well, I mean, I, I refuse to, to blame the, the they call it the nut behind the wheel or whatever, because I, I think it's just, it's so complicated. It doesn't have to be this complicated. I mean, it should be designed so, a sixth grader could figure it out. I mean, right. we get in these brand new cars, and it's like there's a button that says, you know, RTLAQ. You know, and it's like ah, I've, there are buttons that have acronyms that I don't know, right. and it, and that's a problem. And I, I know they they're haphazardly placed, first haphazardly. of all, like,
0: because you know they realize they had to add that in at some point. Right. Again, the q 7s the best example of it. You control most of the safety features in the menu, except for the one that's here that you can't see. <laughs> right. You know, right, right. And that's the key one. That's the one that keeps you on the road.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, they, they they are unbelievably complicated. And I think, you know, I think they try to make the, you know, the interior sexy and they try to make them different and, and whatnot. But it's like, you know, I mean, even like lane departure. I mean, there's most cars now, they'll have a brand new car. You'll get, you know, there's, there's lanes. And there's another button that has lanes with a zigzag on it. There's another lane. The car, like this, halfway car, through. There's a ping pong table here, you know. It's like you can't even. <laughs> yep. it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. There's not standardization and it's not logically laid out. Like again, like again, consumer electronics. I think they do a much better job.
0: And you can keep your identity. You know, manufacturers have been able to do it. And you know, <coughs> Subaru, I think, sure, has had sure. has success recently with that. They've they've redone their interiors, and you no, know, you have your brand identity, but you still are able to access the features. Right. Yep. Um, so, I want to move over here to what is the benefit? What what benefits will autonomy and vehicle to vehicle vehicle infrastructure bring to us? Uh, whether in terms of efficiencies or or what? You know, we talked about this a bit, Jim, so if, if you can Yeah, I mean, uh,
3: the, particularly the connectivity uh, will improve traffic flow, reduce fuel consumption,
0: uh, reduce emissions. Is it just because of the efficiency of flow of traffic Correct. or, or right. throttle application, you know, what would, we, what would we see, do you think? It, it's really the, uh, you
3: know, the vehicle will know when the light's going to change uh, and uh, even before it starts to control the vehicle mm-hmm. further down the road. Years from now, it can warn the driver, uh, you know, you can see that light from a distance, it's green, but you're not going to make it through that green light, so you might as well start slowing down now. And how, how do you think that that would be demonstrated to the driver? Uh, well, <clears throat> there again, there's a variety of different concepts, and I've seen probably a dozen. Good and bad. Good and bad, yes.
1: To, to ask some hard questions, I mean, you know, I mean, again, the, the other side of this. You know, will we get in a situation where people say, wow, if I speed up, I'll make that light that I don't see? Will we get in situations where people are like, wow, I could tailgate closer because my car is going to tell me when the car is up front? And I mean, there's always that other side of relying on this technology or maybe using it for other, other reasons.
3: Yeah, and for the last couple of decades, that's really what we've done a lot of research here at on is looking at, how people behavioral right. changes in the use of lane departure warning, forward collision warning, uh, curve speed warning. Uh, you know, what what changes in their behavior? Uh, is their compensation? Do they assume more risk, or are they actually made better drivers? And it really depends on the technology and it depends on the implementation.
1: Is there any technologies that you found that that people would assume more risks for because they're you know, wow. It's like, i got an airbag now, I could drive faster. Yeah, you know? no, we've, <laughs> not,
3: uh, we've not seen really risk compensation where people will all of a sudden think that the uh, vehicle's safer, so therefore they can drive more recklessly. Uh, but we have seen some systems that you know, do actually improve behavior, and not always the way you would expect. Uh, so lane departure warning was one where we found that people who were least likely to use their turn signals. When you gave them lane departure warning, all of a sudden started using the oh, turn signals. Oh, because they, yeah. they the, uh, avoid the because, warnings. Because right, right. the warnings. In, well, that's in, interesting. In the, yeah. And that was even subtle, uh, it was just the vibrating of the seat.
2: Right. You're a very basic V2V. Yeah, very basic.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's not even the warning that's helping them, it's just now more people using turn signals. Right. right. Interesting.
2: Do you feel there's like a, a prime uh, implementation for either the connectivity or the autonomy? like? Emergency vehicles or trucks, or do you ever study that? I
3: I think realistically, uh, connectivity uh, is really going to benefit most in urban, suburban areas, where where you're trying, yep, you're trying to control traffic flow, ease congestion. Autonomy, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if we really, truly see the first fully autonomous vehicles being commercial vehicles. That's what I was say. Truck yeah.
2: lanes, I can envision truck lanes yeah. that are fully autonomous, uh, that know, we're if, not even engaged in yet.
3: Right. In in a commercial trucking operation, a third of their cost is the driver. Right. Yeah. And anything that they can do to reduce that cost um, makes them more competitive, because the profit margins in commercial <laughs> trucking are very small. Yep.
1: Sure, uh-huh. and, and, and really, in terms of, you know, in terms of autonomy, um, you know, highway travel is probably the easiest place to yeah. implement. It. Even though, yes, you're going faster, so maybe there's higher risk. But it's like it's, you know, a highway is pretty. Right.
3: Yeah, you it's don't. Not have, so random. <laughs> you don't have too many bicyclists. Right. You don't have too right. many pedestrians. Right. Controlled. Right. Other than the occasional deer that might run across your path. But they're gonna have chips. They're gonna you have said, chips. Right. right? Yes.
1: <laughs> We're installing them after the show. <laughs>
0: Jen, what have we seen with some of the uh, valuations of the systems from manufacturers on, on our facility? Uh, you know, we have uh, we built we've built a, a vehicle, that, you know, to test automatic emergency braking and such, but. You know what, what's been your experience recently with that?
2: Yeah, So, so for the most part, they do what they say they're going to do, and, and, and it's not just us; it's the IHS, and it's already are tracking these systems as well. What we do find is the technology moving very quickly, um, so that for us, you know, who are, you're trying to make a target that these these cars will see. The technology moves so quickly that we can't keep up with a target because they get better and better. They know that it's not a car. They know it's a target for some variety of reasons. It doesn't have the right radar signature or LIDAR signature. So keeping up with that technology is very difficult. The other thing we do see is they're they're all, on the vehicles that have them, they're all pretty good at slower speeds. But where we're to so the city speeds, the systems. city speeds, they will bring you to a stop from 25 miles per hour or lower for the most part on the vehicles that have them. Where we're saying maybe there's potential benefit is is ones that will operate at higher speeds as well. So we've, we, we kind of separate them in our scoring of, of automatic emergency braking at slow speed and then at highway speed. Um, and that's sometimes hard to to layer out of the manufacturer's information of of which ones do what. Um, so, and we have seen, to your point about the trends, you know, we tracked, what we're seeing is this odd trend, even just between model year 2016 and 2017, we are seeing much more availability of those core FCWAEB systems. And what it seems is they're kind of jumping, um, not just making them optional, but actually going from not being available at all to standard. We,
1: we saw it with Toyota, Yeah, a lot particularly of in the Toyota. Toyota right? um,
2: and we saw similar, I don't, when Toyota, when ESC was early, Toyota was one of the yeah. first manufacturers to put it on all their cars very early, long before it was required. That's well, great.
4: and
0: talking about yeah. signing on, there's an agreement. It's, it's yeah. not rulemaking, it's not uh, yeah. a, a law. But could you explain about the 2020?
2: Right. So what it is is a number of manufacturers, nearly all of the consumer-level vehicles. You know, some there's some you know more boutique-type cars, but they've said that they're going to make these these building-block features, FCW, AEB, standard on their vehicles by 2020. And, and again, just looking at the last two years, we're seeing that. We're seeing that trend upward, which benefits all of us. And, and just, long and just, before a requirement um, right. or a mandate by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration or something like that.
1: And, and just to hang on what you're talking about in terms of the higher speed stuff, and mm-hmm. and certainly they've agreed, you know, FCW and AEB, but the higher speed stuff is stuff we're looking at. And, and just to truly understand the capability it's not to say necessarily that you're driving 70 miles per hour and somebody something there's a brick wall and thing stops completely right. but it will mitigate the crash right. it will slam on the brakes and maybe there'll still will be a crash but it's not going to be as life threatening right. because of these systems and what they're capable of and how quickly they can react
0: right. it's engaging yeah. the the brakes quicker than the cons- that a person could you can react that, pre-charging that's right. charging the brakes or
1: like and, and again if perhaps the driver would have distracted right. and didn't did not operate you know and actually even if they they slam on the brakes i mean that is going to get the you know, alert of the driver and maybe they could even avoid the accidents because they're like, oh, wow, something's going on.
2: But true, there's data even from the tire side that says even in an emergency situation, a driver, even a good driver, doesn't utilize all of the braking capability that there is there. So the car can take advantage of all of that where the driver may not.
1: We we do this uh, teen school that we do twice a year at our track. And it's one, one of it. One of it is is doing that and getting someone to slam on the brakes yeah. all the way when you need to. Yeah. And it's amazing because you could get you know somebody with a twenty-year-old Camry, who is slamming on the brakes, and they're going to stop better than the average driver driving a Ferrari, because most people are not doing that. Right. They're not using the full capabilities of the car. So you know anybody's listening. I mean, you need to stop. You're not going to break the gas pedal off. I a mean, right. brake pedal off, you know, you slam on those brakes, and there are so much capabilities in the average car.
2: You go very fundamentally. There's <clears> people. <throat> there may be people in this room that have never felt their ABS. They've never felt that pulse of the right, ABS, and right. that's been out there a
1: long time. Right, right. I mean, unless that's was a good like, thing. Unless it was but, snow or something right. like that. But, uh, but it's like, yeah, yep. dry roads to get the ABS on. Wow, you right. got to put a lot of force on there. Yep.
0: I think, what, what would a panel here say to some of the people who are skeptics about it? Oh, I'm a good driver. I don't want all this stuff going in my vehicle. I, you know, what, what's, how do you convince people to say, like, look, A, this is helpful, and B, so it's, this is going to help you. You're not a super driver. So, 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 so I think it's, it's,
1: it's quite simple. So, and, and it kind of goes back to ABS, right? And like braking systems, there was a lot of people like, I don't need ABS. I know how to threshold brake, which I know how to <laughs> not do that. Well, you know what? And like brake systems can individually stop each one of the wheels. So maybe you're an awesome driver, but you don't have four brake pedals and you can't individually do that. Um, same is true in terms of vehicle to vehicle communication. You know what? You might be an awesome driver. You can't see around the building. You can't see that car three cars up. You don't have that information. So, in a way, if you have that information, you become a better driver or your vehicle becomes a better driver.
3: And it, I and
2: would, oh, sorry, Jim. Go ahead. And
3: it's not just about you as the driver. It's also about protecting you from other drivers. That's, that's
2: exactly <laughs> what right. I was right, 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 right. Like I say to my seventeen-year-old yeah. who goes out at night, I'm like, it's not just about you. It's about the other crazies in the world.
3: Right. Because right. you're yeah. a great driver. You just want
1: the other people <laughs> well, that's to a have big technology. Right. right? right. So this so room is safe. safe. We're yes. all great drivers. We're all. <laughs> safe. all
5: safe. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's above, above average. average. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So after all of this, you know, great discussion. Do we see any challenges to autonomy? Uh, you know, any drawbacks to to the automation of our fleet? Yeah, we really
3: don't rightly know what's going to happen. Uh, there are a lot of potential things that, uh, while there could be a lot of great benefits of automation, uh, there could be some downfalls, you know, one being uh, occupant protection. You know, we see a lot of concept vehicles where the occupants are going to be able to lounge or lay down and, <laughs> or, or be seated. Like a, ke- like a teenager, right? Yeah, yeah kinda... or, or, or seated, you know, where they're not looking the direction they're traveling. And so then that all of a sudden introduces a bunch of challenges about airbag deployment and crumple zones. the
1: laptop and, is on your lap and right. the airbag goes off, How's that work out? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. You've got these other flying objects, uh, you know, but related to laptops. Now, if you think about, well, gee, if I could make that hour commute a productive commute, you know, I could spend a whole hour doing email before I get into the office and a whole hour on the way home. Maybe I wouldn't mind living two hours away. Sure. And you know, and so it could contribute to in fuel consumption, fuel and- consumption, actually just exposure. Just the fact that you as an occupant are on the road twice as long, your
0: risk is going to go up because it, the fleet won't be able to turn over. Correct. Yeah, so until it's the, the minority report days, you know, and, and everyone just climbs in the vehicle that travels by itself, yes. that's when you're going to have someone who may hit you. Right. But, but therein lies. Another
3: challenge, if everybody travels by themselves, you know, um, 10 years ago, I think we had one cell phone in our house, you know, and right. today we have five, but there are only four people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've it, got to run my speaker <laughs> while I'm on my bike, <laughs> but, you know. It's a- uh, yeah. So if I could afford to buy a vehicle that would automatically take my child to school in the morning, one to one school, one to another, maybe the dog to doggy daycare. Why wouldn't I? Now I'm contributing
0: to traffic
3: congestion.
2: Because the dog didn't need a car before. Anyway. Garden yeah. exactly the auto
0: manufacturers love that's part of the uh, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that that will help with the
3: Well I mean and
1: car sharing is yep. one way that they've to talked counter, about right, counter right? that, but but who knows? Maybe maybe if you look at the market, it's I want a car for the dog, and there'll be dog cars that'll be, you know, they'll look like Snoopy dog houses or something. I don't know.
2: Maybe you don't need school buses anymore. <laughs> maybe you point. don't. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Oh, that's
2: true. Yeah. So maybe that's another counter.
0: Anyway. Well, I, I think that's, a, that's been a great discussion, and it's a great opportunity for us to open up questions to our assembled audience.
1: Hi, I'm John from Santa Rosa, California. With the rise of smart taxi and ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft, how should automakers
5: be adapting their business models to account for the fact that millennials will be probably less likely to purchase a car, particularly if they live in an urban environment?
1: So, what they should do is they should market cars to the dog and the children <laughs> to compensate for the ride sharers. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's a couple things going on. I mean, one is actively recruiting the Uber drivers, and actually, you know, we'll see Uber packages for your new car. Um, the other thing is different ways of financing vehicles. So Ford it was the last year announced that they would have a like a multi-person lease, so you could lease the car to eight people and they could share it. So I think get understanding how the market is going and then looking for opportunities there.
0: And maybe even part and parcel with the insurance companies. Because there's a lot of concern about who's liable there, and as well as working with cities and towns and regulations you know because there's already a taxi industry for example established, and you know that they don't want to have the, the the challenge of uber coming in and, and undercutting them sure
1: sure, and uh, just just innovation i mean the other thing uh, what was it? Uh, general Motors just announced uh i think it was like two days ago um that they would have the uh Cadillacs and you pay them a monthly fee and it's everything's covered like you don't have to park the car. They'll just bring whatever Cadillac you want to you. And it's, they do this in New York City. And it's like, oh, I want a you know Cadillac CTS-V today. And pff, it's there. No insurance, no parking, no nothing. So just innovative ways of owning or using a car.
2: I think Jim touched on it too. The interior may look different. The seating configurations, the features in there may change depending on yeah. who it's marketed to.
3: But I think that you know while millennials now may be focusing on urban environments and maybe less on car ownership, by the time you start to have children, that changes. And so think about the challenge in a shared car environment with child seats. You know, is it rearward facing, is it forward facing, having to adjust the belts to properly fit the child? Do you want your child sitting in the car seat that's already got the Cheerios and Cracker Crumbs from somebody else's child? (laughs) Uh, So I, I think it's, there's still a lot of cars that are going to be sold to personal people, individuals.
0: Well, you know, and, and based on I didn't want to toss the gen here, you know, fit to vehicle, and we see this with you know renting a car. So, and who's providing that seat? You know, so. Will you actually have a seat, you know? Oh, you're is the seat gonna be, oh, it's a, it's a seat that we provide for you, you know? And can you explain some of the stuff that we've seen with car rental for just regular travel?
2: Right, so so certainly child seat fitment is still a huge issue because there are still so many incompatibilities and Umtree does work and we do work and a lot of other people are still keeping our jobs because that exists. We envision a world where it's much more click and play and, and that might be to Jim's point. Maybe the child seat, you lift the cushion and it just clicks into a frame that's, that's already there in a future vehicle for these reasons. Or it might have a cover that's much more easily removed and much more disposable, so that you can replace it. So those those are just things that ultimately could. child yeah, I mean, you're, on the you're, child safety side.
0: you're a tall guy. You know, you get that rear-facing bucket that you put in there, and they give you a uh, you know a Nissan Versa. That's not right. going to work with <laughs> the yeah. seat position and everything. So right. there are some challenges.
5: Hi, I'm Phil from Ontario, Canada. I have a question about electric cars and battery performance. Um, So now that the uh, prices are coming down, and especially the range getting attractive, um, it's becoming an option for me as a next purchase. But uh, one thing we never hear about is um, what happens to the battery range over time, Um, because anybody who's owned a laptop or a cell phone knows that that battery starts to degrade over time and doesn't hold the charge anymore. So if I buy, for example, a Chevy Bolt with 200-mile range,
3: What's it going to be in five years? Is it going to be 100 miles or that's a big concern for me. Yeah, particularly on a cold day like we have in Michigan and Ontario, right? Well, there's,
1: there's, two, there's two issues, right? One is the kind of the daily, the daily range. You're not going to get 200 miles on, on today if you're running on heat. But you're talking about long, longevity. Yeah. What's going to happen at these, you know, these Teslas when they're 10 years old and whatnot. And certainly we are, you are going to see a hurt in terms of, uh, in terms of their range, um, you know, maybe in ten years it might be you might lose ten percent, twenty percent, or thirty percent. They're still going to be very functional vehicles. Um, but you know, the truth is that we don't know. I mean, I was I was working at Consumer Reports when the the, test, uh, the, uh, the the Prius went on the market, and everyone's like, I wouldn't buy a Prius because I'm going to have to buy a brand new battery. It's going to cost ten thousand dollars. Well, that never really happened.
0: Um, in fact, we evaluated one with 200,000 miles on it.
1: Well, right, and it was still fine, but even if you do have a problem with the battery, you get it from a salvage yard, it costs 350 50 bucks, I mean, there's different ways. So the truth is, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years when the battery capacity goes down 30%. It's possible those batteries are going to have a secondary market that people are using for home use. So with uh, what Tesla's doing with the Powerwall, I mean, there's definitely a use for these big lithium-ion batteries in a home, perhaps, if you have solar and you want to store your energy. Um, perhaps in 10 years, you'll want to replace your battery because maybe the prices are going to come way down. It's going to be much better range available. So your Bolt, you want to get that new battery that makes it go 300 miles. Or maybe it's the end of the life of the car anyway. So you know, truly with any new technology, you are kind of taking a risk because you don't know exactly what's going to happen down the road.
0: I think the Israeli company that had the battery swap idea <clears throat> or even Tesla's supposed swap setup is a little bit ahead of its time. You know, it, it was a great idea, it there was, wasn't the need for it, it at was that great moment. in RC cars. Yeah, right, cars, right, right, that battery Two so little, really like little a... plastics and the whole frame comes off. But they were ahead of their time, and it will be something that some, someone, someone who's an innovator, will, will, will likely address, and it's, I'm sure it's percolating.
1: But, but let, me, let me, I mean, you mentioned laptop batteries, and anyone who has a five-year-old laptop already knows their battery is probably already dead. Um, the cars do a much better job of maintaining the longevity of the battery than the laptop. So don't think it's a lithium-ion battery in my laptop; it's dead. Into well, you leave it plugged into the wall, and it, it, it gets a memory result, age, and there's all types of problems. You don't necessarily have that with cars. They do a good job of also not utilizing the entire battery. So, like in a laptop battery, you're really using the whole charge. Um, they they manage it very smartly.
2: And to, to add to your point. Electric cars and our owner satisfaction, not, we're not talking reliability or performance, our owner satisfaction on electric cars is still some of the highest numbers. The people that have had them, including cars like the, the Prius, they still love them. So they, I don't think we're realizing that in the owner well, satisfaction.
1: Well, and yet. not yet, because we don't have a lot of 10 year olds Right. electric cars. Right. So. It's a good
3: question. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Jonathan, and I'm a student here in Ann Arbor, and my question is, what is the greatest challenge, policy or technology-wise, that is preventing autonomous cars from being adopted by the general public? Well, I would say technology It's still uh, the integration of all the various sensor technologies on board uh, to be able to address all scenarios, snowing, sandstorms. That's still really the challenge. There's still a number of environmental types of circumstances that the current technologies are challenged by. Uh, but that is not to say that there aren't uh, social and legal challenges as well, because there are. Uh, some of it's going to be social, uh, some of it's going to be trust on the part of the users, whether they'll feel comfortable uh, relinquishing control to the vehicle themselves. Uh, some of it, as was mentioned earlier, you know, people just don't think, you know, I'm, I'm a good driver, I don't need this. Um, When in reality, because people do typically under brake, an automated vehicle would be better for them, and the rest of us out in the driving public. So there are still challenges in both areas, but I would say probably the technological challenges, while they will be overcome, um, are probably the biggest hurdles right now, because we don't have fully autonomous vehicles operating on the road. Once we do, then the social and the legal challenges will will take charge. I, I, think, I think there's
1: two, two, two big things. Is one is dealing with humans mm-hmm. because they're unpredictable. So um, there's a lot of un- unpredictable things, they're gone with the weather, of, of just what, what they have to deal with. and It's hard to come up with all those things. But in terms of relinquishing control, I think that's very interesting because I think the first time a fully autonomous vehicle crashes and the driver dies, wow, that's going to be huge. That's going to be big news and going to be big problems. Thirty thousand people every year die in, in automotive fatalities in the United States. Not every one is big news, but I think that without a doubt, the car is going to be held to a much higher, higher threshold. Yeah, and
3: so, and some of the manufacturers have tried to address that point by saying, you know, we need to be at least as good as, you know, and depending, you know, not it, everyone agrees with that. No, you know, no, heard, and, I, right. and I've heard that, you know, and
1: and, and, and you know, again, Elon Musk talks about it and says, well, if we're 10% better than a driver, we need to do this, otherwise we're killing people. Well, I don't know, because, again, 30,000 people say, die right now. If 3,000 people are killed, not because of their own doing, but because the car malfunctions, I don't know if we're ready to tolerate that as a society.
5: Hi, I'm Bryce from Green Bay, Wisconsin. My question is, with self driving cars, you know, on the forefront and coming out, what does, talking cars or see our cars as an entirety look like 15, 20 years from now.
1: We'll be doing the entire show from the car, car. Which is driving yes. us.
0: It'll be a round-the-country around the tour just <laughs> like this, <laughs> and you can watch us as we go by. Uh, it's an excellent question. Um, I still think that there'll be people who want cars. Maybe it'll, it'll, it'll morph to the experience that you have with the vehicle, um, what the vehicle's providing you. Uh, maybe it's an advice show of how you can find, still find the, the manual transmission car <laughs> out there. there. There's
1: still going to be differences in, in vehicles, and we'll still be testing them.
0: And so some of the,
1: some of the, um, the talk in terms of autonomous is the, the cars will have different personalities. So perhaps one car will drive more aggressively than another car. You know, Somebody wants to have something that's very, very safe and keeps the distance, and some car will you know, aggressively merge. Um, uh, so there's definitely going to be a lot to evaluate in these vehicles. And, and
5: we've we'll got a
2: good time. And I would say certainly our track and many others might look a lot more like M-City looks. Yet Probably. we would have to have features that evaluate all this autonomous function. So we have a lot of test track work perhaps too to change.
0: And then also just yeah. com- kind of coming out of CES, you know, what is that experience like going to be, be for you? You know, Because that's been all the talk. And again, that's that's a lot of hype, I think. And maybe panel agreed or not. But oh, the experience yeah, is right. going to be... That's very far down the road because the vehicles still are not even...
4: Semi autonomous. Hi, Ding uh, Zhao from Amtree. Uh, actually, six years ago when I started my PhD study, a starting point is actually a study uh, of ABS from Consumer Report. There oh, you yeah. can, com- the, yeah. <laughs> thank you. There you will <laughs> compare a dozen of the best vehicles at that time uh, by measuring the stopping distance. Mm-hmm. So now, autonomous will come. How can we compare Tesla versus, say, uh, GM Super Cruise? By measuring their intelligence, how can you just give advice to the customers? That's a question.
1: In terms of in terms of their stopping distances, because maybe one car reacts quicker than the other, uh, that's that's a smart question. You know, and, and it's interesting. And, and does
2: it matter? It still stops quicker. Well,
1: and- well I mean, here's the thing: is, is that. Yeah, I'll use a little little insight of how actually we test. So when so. It corrects me. So there's a lot of like car magazines, and they published stopping distances from cars. And if you look and actually have a sharp eye and look at our stopping distances, they're longer. And it's not because we don't press hard on the brake pedal. It's actually because they do the test differently. So the car magazines measure how quickly the car stops from 60 to 0. Makes sense. We measure how long it takes between the time you hit the brake pedal and then the car stops. And it turns out... Between the time you hit the brake pedal and the car starts stopping, you cover a bit of distance. And it's different on each car. So I think what you're thinking about, which is spot on, it's measuring the whole system. So it's the time between the car sees the thing and then stops, as opposed to how long it takes for the car to stop. So I think that's that's a very smart question. And it's something we all have to think about
2: as we test these vehicles. And it might be more directly comparable to what we're doing. Because if we we encompass that whole system, then true stopping distances yeah. from maybe another magazine.
5: Yeah. All right, I'm Colin from Milan, Michigan. Um, and my question is, will the big three automotive companies ever be able to bring their reliability to a steady high level? And what is a major setback to their reliability?
1: Yes, I think they will. I think you know, steady is a very good point because there are you know, drips and drabs of very reliable vehicles. The, what, what is killing them is the attraction to the new technology so you know you look at you know cadillac with q or you look at ford with their you know my my ford touch and what they did there in terms of the infotainment systems that's what's killing them or the new technology the transmission with the dual clutch transmission that really really hurt ford and their small cars Um, you look at toyota and they just kind of stay the course You know, they're not throwing out that new technology. They don't have the dual clutch transmissions. They're only now getting the small displacement turbos and all these things. So I think it's just about, just let's go easy. (laughs) Let's let's systematically add the technology. I think General Motors actually is doing a better job of this than than any of the others. Um, But just kind of stay to the course, add the technology slowly. And I think when they do that, I think GM's probably got the best opportunity to do that. Um, they're going to be right there. There's no reason why they can't build the cars. They're using the same parts, they're building in the same areas. There's no reason.
0: Are they challenged by the the breadth of their lineup? You know, if you're looking at at General Motors product line from tiny Sparks to 3500 series trucks, whereas you look at Toyota and, you know, they have pickups, but it's a smaller one or even Subaru or something. Yes and no.
1: I mean, Toyota's got a huge product lineup and um, you know, Even if you get rid of some of those fringe vehicles, obviously there's no 3,500 series trucks from Toyota, there's still not the consistency. It's not the steady stream. I could count on the car coming from Ford. Absolutely, it's going to be reliable. But I, I think they're, they're showing signs of getting there.
2: The other thing, too, I think that, that, that some of the Japanese, for example, do better is you know, they're better out of the box. That first year, they're as reliable as the fourth year, where it takes some time for the domestics. That first year is kind of this tough learning curve, and they get it by the time that fourth year of that model, it's pretty good, but it always seems to take the domestics a little longer to get there, than and and again, relate to they're trying to do too much in one shot.
1: Well, on the other side of this, the flip side of it is what's going on with the Japanese right now, and we're seeing stumbles. Yeah. So even Honda, Honda. Yeah. you know, right. coming out and redesigning everything and kind of taking the page out of Ford saying, oh, let's go make everything brand new. They're stumbling. stumbling. So everything's kind of going to do this as we go on.
5: My name's Vince from Valparaiso, Indiana. Uh, I am a proud Toyota owner. Uh, my question's about ergonomics. I own a uh, RAV4 hybrid, a Camry hybrid, and a Toyota Sienna. Uh, this morning, as I was driving in here, I noticed that there's a, there are a lot of controls that aren't backlit. Um, and not only that, so you have a stock on three different vehicles that has multiple functions now, whether it's your wiper stock, your, your uh, cruise control, or your turn signal. They all have different functions on them. Um, does the manufacturer just not want to spend the money to put a little LED light in there to backlight it or, and again, the N-tune system on all three models, it's different. So as I go from one vehicle to the other, I'm searching.
1: So yes, they don't want <laughs> to put the money yeah. on the systems, and you're exactly right. So I mean, the, the Toyotas you're talking about, you know, you got a stock that's the light switch. So the lights are off. You'd think that would be Backlit, right? Because it's dark and I want to make it light. Um, and the, and they, they operate strangely. I mean, we, we have a problem with this Toyota system also. The, the, the daytime running lights, it's very last. easy to turn off inadvertently. Um, but in terms of the N-Tune question, you know, and, and again, you know, going back to that, I mean, there's a lot of luxury cars that have lots of backlit and lots, everything's lit and they should be that way. Um, but the N-Tune system, it's again, this, this, how quickly this technology is developing. And it's almost like they're almost at beta when they originally put the Entune in. We actually saw a lot of reliability issues with it, a lot of a lot of functionality problems, and they just keep on updating it. They keep on changing it. So. Um but it's I, I found changing. the
0: ones, the Avalon Entune is great. We have, it, it doesn't have a, t- a toggle, it doesn't have a mouse like the Lexus one. Version. Well, were you talking and about the infotainment? The system? Infotainment, right. you know. it's got, it's got the capacitive switches, which I it's, hate. It, but. but it's but it's a big screen, and you can you can get, right. you know, it, you're not you're not trying to play like Frogger, you know, and, and <laughs> land, land on <laughs> FM, dating. you know, and you get run over yeah. Myself, yeah. right? You know, know, and then you get run over literally, not figuratively. <laughs> so, it, they're like to, to Jay's point, they are it is incrementally getting better, and some applications are better than others.
1: When I started, I mean, it gets to reports. I, mean, probably, I think I started in '99. Every Toyota had the same radio.
0: They had the double DIN,
1: right? It was a big square radio, and it didn't matter if you were in, I, I think it went all the way up to Lexus, but it was like, it didn't matter if you were in a pickup truck or, or anything. Exactly. Two it was knobs, consistent across was the whole It was so fleet. easy to use, mm-hmm. and it was consistent, and you could hop in, and now it's this differentiation and constantly moving. And it, But I did have the uh, power door off
5: function on the van this morning that was backlit but the mirrors weren't backlit or anything <laughs> else. and, so and, and under, at night right? the windows switched. and the lights weren't lit the whole so. panel on your armrest is black right you, you, you
0: know if you're fumbling to find from the mirror control to the front exactly. to the rear with yeah. a van it might even have the two vent windows in the back so it does yep
5: and those were lit but uh, not <laughs> the other functions thank you very much thank you, thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Ryan from uh, Canada. Just curious what you think about the compact, uh, well, the emergence of the luxury compact uh, utility vehicle market, and how that's gonna affect the luxury uh, small sedan uh, market.
2: I think there's still, to Jake's point, I think there's still drivers out there that that don't get the whole SUV concept in general and and real, and I think you'll see, my opinion, I think you'll see those luxury, sporty, compact um, luxury cars still stay around.
1: Yeah. less less so though. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean yeah. you look at you look at what's happening in the non-luxury market, right? I mean, the smallest SUV, the RAV4s we're talking right. about, I mean, those are the new family car. Yep. Right? I mean, certainly there's that Exodus from cars. Um, sports sedans, Yeah, they will say, but it's like honestly, the sports sedan market is not a very healthy one. Um, there aren't a lot of real great hitters in there because I think the manufacturers are putting their their money in developing these luxury SUVs because that is where the market is going. So the market is getting broader, it'll, right? It'll, great. There's more niches, but, but I mean, just- It'll shrink. It'll shrink, but- But it,
2: I think it'll still be, we'll still see, that's what I'm saying.
1: We'll still see BMW 3 Series right. for a long time because they're gonna be very popular in other markets. They're gonna be sold here yep. still.
0: Well, when you look at the, uh, say, for example, the Audi SQ5, I mean, very high-performing vehicle yeah. mm-hmm. with the utility that goes along with it. Right. I used to own a, a small luxury sports sedan, and. I could. Bar- I'm six-two. I could right. barely fit in the car. Right. The
4: trunk was useless. And then when kids right. came along, it was like, forget it. Like I got <laughs> to get rid of this thing. Head. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, a little SUV is where we're kind of headed now.
1: They're yeah. very useful vehicles, and it's like you know, it used to be you know there was a lot of people that were kind of down on SUVs because they were really pickup trucks with a with a box around them, and they're not that anymore. They are they are station wagons with a high roof that are very very functional and really great great choices.
4: Thank you very much. I'm David uh, from Bloomfield, Michigan. Um, Consumers Reports has been known to be the impartial, objective publication uh, dealing with automobiles, con- certainly compared to the, uh, the the typical automotive journal fan fan magazine. Um, however, uh, lately you are, are certainly on the talking cars uh, uh, videos and some of the publications. You talk about styling. You talk about um, uh, uh, more uh, subjective feelings than you have in the past. And, I, and I've been wondering, how do you balance the subjectivity versus the objectivity and continue to uphold your reputation as the objective publication? I'm going to give
1: you a little hint. And then just don't tell anybody. It's just between me and you. We're humans. And we're car enthusiasts. So um, when I first started, when I first got the original interview at Consumer Reports, I'll, I'll be honest. I was like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a car guy. You know, I race cars and I'm really into cars. Always have it. And I'm like Consumer Reports. I don't know. There and then I actually started there and I'm like everyone, they're car enthusiasts. So so. Um, you know it is an interesting balancing act and and there is a difference and i think you're you're spot on we're having conversations about things that you know people care about you know they care about styling they care about um, you know how the car makes them feel or maybe the prestige from a certain car but we are not going to rate the vehicles on them we're all about giving the information um you know if i am going to be you know rating how the car handles or how it rides I don't care what brand is on it. I don't care if it's a luxury brand or a sports car brand or, or a Chevy. And, and you see that with famously, I think the uh, the Chevrolet Impala, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we went on and gushed about this car, and it was like, well, it's a rental car. It's like, no, get in the car. It rides better than a luxury car. It really does, and it's true. And I think you know people have gotten into it and realized that. But there is a differentiation, and I think we try to get into those, those kind of the the more subjective side. I mean, we talk about owner satisfaction. That's not an objective measurement at all, but, it, but again, it's information that I think everyone should know about when they purchase a car, which is pretty expensive.
0: And I think that some of the styling, for example, it's not something we rate, we don't score, we, we don't care. We may have an opinion that the Lexus grill, my, my opinion, the Lexus spindle grill looks bizarre, <laughs> um, but the styling is also a key point in other objective measurements. You know, Styling impacts visibility. You know, so you can't just say, oh, it's got bad visibility. Well, why? Why is it? Well, the styling, and then the styling impacts uh, cabin access. Maybe the front is different than the rear. The rear cabin access is worse, particularly if you're someone putting in that child seat in the bucket and you're banging your head on the Lexus uh, NX uh, roof. So you, you, can, you, can, you can talk about things that would be subjective, that aren't rateable, but they do have an aspect that fall into our ratings later. And we just have to make sure we do a good job of explaining that so that people don't think, well, you know, we're, we're just talking about styling and that's impacting the vehicle score.
2: I just wanted to add too that I do think we are investigating different channels and, and always looking to gain our audience and the magazine and, and everything you've said, the, the, you know, the impartiality, that's always been our, our, our main point and that still exists. But I do think some of what we do can be entertaining, can be fun, and those aspects that we don't get to talk about in the magazine, this is a great forum. To be able to talk a little bit to that and and let people know, and and maybe people aren't coming that to this to talking cars for just that. They want to be entertained by the conversation as well.
4: With talking cars, you feel more of a freedom to voice your feelings instead of just being purely objective.
2: And we keep it separate from the rating, to to John
4: and Jim. Right. Yeah. We're definitely you know we're expanding our audience.
0: You know the different mediums, and and we have to play in those spaces, um, but we never are going to give up our core values. Thank you.
5: Hello, my name is Steven from Saginaw, Michigan, and my question is, with today's discussion and the ultimate goal is to have V2V and V2I automation for driving, um, do you see any challenges with people who might be um, lagging the market who maybe in 10 to 15 years from now are still driving a 2013 Subaru with 300,000 miles on and you can't really get the 100% uh, cars who are talking to each other?
3: Well, again, you know, back to the, the technology can be readily retrofitted. Uh, and really the onus is on the technology manufacturers to bring the value where people are going to want to purchase it because they perceive a value, they're getting a benefit from it. Uh, the expense probably is not going to be a barrier. Uh, so we will always have people, for example, who want to live off the grid uh, that may not want it on their vehicle. Uh, but I think, for by and large, uh, the applications that are going to become available uh, and the cost is going to make it very attractive, and people will be more inclined to retrofit their vehicles. Uh, hi, I'm Davis uh, from Mount Prospect, Illinois. Um, you guys do a pretty good job of recommending cars for people, but have you ever thought about recommending people for cars? So perhaps you don't get a 16-year-old driver in a... Th- Three-ton pickup truck that's going to crush you.
0: Yeah, yeah and, right. and,
2: and we try, so so it, it just not as always as evident. And we just talked about um, doing ratings for specific groups of people. You know, and it may not mean even doing any more testing, but maybe reparseling the ratings. The car f- that's great for you maybe not is a good teen driver car or a senior driver car. Maybe we weight the access or something like that for somebody who's an older driver more heavily. Doesn't even mean any more testing. But we kind of break that out. So the closest we come right now is, to your point, these teen driver lists. And we talk about it being like the Goldilocks of cars. Not too fast, not too slow, full of safety features, great reliability, and those are those teen driver cars. Um, Not too expensive, Um, but we could do more of that.
0: So that's it for this episode of Talking Cars. I want to thank Jim Sayer and the Umtree staff for hosting us, as well as the audience for coming out and supporting us and giving us some great questions. As always, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.